Again, our reading is Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the, church, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks, Hannah. Well, again, uh, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, have them open to Revelation 2. Uh, I'd love to just pray for our time uh, as we jump into God's Word, so let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are the God who is at work in and among and through your people. And so, Lord, I do ask that in this time that we would be awakened to the truth that, that Jesus, you are the one who walks among the lampstands, among the church, with the church. Lord, may we be aware of the fact that you are here, that you are present, that you are near, and that you long for us to hear from you. And so may your spirit open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive from you what you would have us here, that we might live in light of that truth, serving you and serving others for the good of all and the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, um, it, is, it is really good to be with you all this morning. I was, uh, I was with our, our Shawnee campus uh, brothers and sisters last week, and, it, just, and I was, it was a great time. I loved being there, but even just being away for one week... I was reminded of just how much I really do love this place. I love you people, and so I just, it just, I love it. I really do. I know I'm paid to say that, but I just love coming back here, and so thank you for making this place such a welcoming place, not just for, for people who visit, but for me as well, and so I love that. But, um, but as I mentioned, last week I was with our Shawnee campus, and, and it was a great time being with them. It was my third time being there on a Sunday morning, my first time preaching, and all three times that I visited there, it has been in three different locations, and, and I don't know if you know this, but I mean, like our Shawnee brothers and sisters, they have been a mobile church for so long, meeting in, they've actually been in four locations total. And so that is, that is no small thing, y'all, that they are a pioneering group, and we are encouraged and blessed by them to call them brothers and sisters. But, but as I was with them, I was reminded of how uniquely we are connected to the Shawnee campus for several reasons. One, many of you may know that Shawnee was planted out of the Olathe campus, which is a really cool thing. And so it's kind of our first granddaughter campus, if you will, uh, since we were planted out of Leewood. Uh, the second is that we're actually the two campuses of all five that are the closest in proximity. 
And so we're kind of the neighbor campuses, which means we can borrow power tools and never return them. Uh, that's what neighbors do. Uh, but thirdly, the other connection is that Tim Spanberg, who's the campus pastor, uh, he also has four kids like I do. We're the only campus pastors with four kids, which means we need a lot of help. And so he, I have three girls and a little boy. They have three, gir- three boys and a little girl, which means there's bound to be a wedding between our families at some point, <laughs> which Tim did not like that joke. Um, but... But I say that, like, one of the things I've learned about being a father of a large family is that there are some things you have to compromise on, and there are some things you shouldn't compromise on. And in of those things I've learned, I don't know if the Spanbergs have learned this, but I have learned that one of the things that a large family shouldn't compromise on within their limits is the, va- the, the hotel they stay in on vacation. And my family learned this this summer. We, we went to the lovely country of Texas. I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, but we went down to Texas, and one of our stops was in Waco, and we stayed. I chose to to keep all of our family in Waco at a Super 8 hotel, one room, two twin beds, all six of us. And so Megan and I are in one bed, all three girls, like out of like a Dickens movie, are in, uh, in another bed. And then little Eddie is in this pack and play, wedged between the bed and the air conditioner. And at one point in the middle of the night, the girls are like fighting over each other, Eddie is screaming, and Megan and I are just laughing, holding back tears, laughing at how we tried to save some money by staying in this hotel. And, and the next morning at breakfast, down to the Super 8, my daughter Jane, who has a way with words, said, they shouldn't call this place Super 8, they should call it Terrible 8. <laughs> and so, sorry for any of those who work uh, for Super 8 motels, but, but, but I say this because there are, there are things you should compromise on, there are things you shouldn't compromise on. And and as we turn to our letter, to the church at Thyatira in Revelation, one of the things that we should absolutely add to the list and place at the top of things that we shouldn't compromise on is Jesus. We should not compromise with Jesus. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in the book of Revelation for the past few weeks in our series, A Church for the End of the World. And we come to this letter to the church at Thyatira, which is the fourth letter. So we're a little bit out of order. We will come back to the third letter, the church at Pergamum. But I want us to look at this letter. And if there's one thing you take away from our time this morning, I hope it's this. That compromising with Jesus gets you nothing. Compromising with Jesus gets you nothing. Like I said, there are times when we should compromise. It's appropriate, right, and good. But there are times when we shouldn't compromise, and Jesus absolutely is one we should not compromise on. Because to follow Jesus is a whole life endeavor, because Jesus is king. That is the the theme of Revelation. He is not one voice we listen to among many. He is not one counselor we seek advice from among a whole list of counselors. He is our king. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira, and in many ways to Christ's community. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of set some context for us around this letter and around the church at Thyatira, because to understand what's going on in this city, it's really helpful to know as we understand why Jesus is writing this unique letter to this people. And again, these letters are written to real churches comprised of real people in real cities. And so we have an opportunity to listen to what this letter has to say also to us as Christ's community. So Thyatira, uh, it's, it's an ancient city in, in um, modern-day Turkey. In fact, the city still exists today under a new name, Akisar. And, and that city, it literally means White Castle, which I hope has a better connotation in Turkey than it does here in the United States, because we just associate White Castle with burgers that taste like regret. Um, so hopefully, I'm just offending Super 8 and 
White Castle altogether. But those are fighting words. I know the guy running slides, Adam, is a big fan of, of White Castle, so he might just shut the slides down. But the point is, we all, we, we, we see this beauty, this language actually of White Castle is meant to communicate this vibrancy, this, this, uh, this beauty, this flourishing city. And that's very much what Thyatira uh, was in this time. Thyatira was, had a very strong economy built on two main industries of metal smithing and fabric production. But like all of the other cities in the Greco-Roman world, Thyatira was deeply steeped in pagan worship and ritual. And so as a result, the Christians in this city found themselves compromising on their convictions and their allegiance to Jesus by tolerating this false teaching by this woman named Jezebel. And, and what happened is they began engaging in the, these pagan practices that were so seamlessly integrated into their work and the, and the broad economy in that city. And this is the central issue that plagued the church in Thyatira. They had compromised on their convictions, and they had capitulated to the culture. They had given in to the culture and essentially kind of began looking like, acting like, uh, sounding like everybody else in Thyatira. There was a split allegiance in the church. And so to illustrate, it would be like if you claim to be a Chiefs fan, you come into Arrowhead Stadium wearing a Patrick Mahomes jersey, but also a New England Patriots hat. Like, that won't jive well. Or like, if you have like a Tom Brady tattoo on your neck, like, that just does not go well. If you claim to be a Chiefs fan, you're clearly communicating a split allegiance. And this is what was happening in the church at Thyatira. They were wanting to be a church that worshiped Jesus on Sunday, but as they entered into their Monday lives, they just engaged in all of the pagan practices that everybody else was engaging in. And so for us as a church to hear and learn from Thyatira, we need to seek to be a church that is uncompromising, uncompromising in our allegiance, our convictions, and our devotion to Jesus and to his kingdom. And so what I want to do as we walk through the text is look at three qualities of an uncompromising church. Three qualities of an uncompromising church. And the first is this, that an uncompromising church sees through the lies. An uncompromising church sees through the lies. Now, the church at Thyatira, in many ways, had the exact opposite problem of the church at Ephesus that we looked at two weeks ago. Ephesus, if you remember, Ephesus was known for their discernment. They were theologically astute. They were a sharp congregation. They knew all of the answers. If they engaged in Bible trivia, they would have won. They were smart, but what they lacked was love and compassion, which is the very thing that Thyatira is known for. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 19. We read these words, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But what Ephesus lacked, Thyatira had, but what Ephesus had, Thyatira lacked. Thyatira did not have that discerning spirit, that rootedness in truth, so that when they heard false teaching, they were able to reject it and walk away and remain rooted in Jesus. They were swayed by the stories and the lies told by the culture, and particularly by this woman referred to as Jezebel. And so because they lacked this discernment, they allowed the lies of the culture, the pagan practices, to infiltrate their faith, their thinking, their worship, and their work. They found themselves, like I said, worshiping Jesus in church on Sunday, but looking like everybody else and engaging in the practices of the pagan culture on Monday. And so the question we should ask as we think about Thyatira and how they weren't discerning, do we know 
When we're being lied to, this is the question we should ask. If we are to be an uncompromising church, the question we should ask ourselves is, do we know when we're being lied to? Last month, uh, beginning of September, if you're a true Olathean, you went to Old Settlers. Okay, that, that's just a fact. Okay, if you, if you don't know what Old Settlers is, Old Settlers, the first three days, uh, early September, there's a, car- a carnival, a parade, the city smells like funnel cake for a week and a half, it's lovely. Uh, I took my family to Old Settlers, we're walking around the carnival games, and I'm explaining to my daughters how these games are rigged. Like, they're all designed to lure you in, get your money, they're very hard. They look easy, but they're very difficult. As I'm explaining this to them, there's a game that catches my eye. And I'm like, oh, I could win that. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen it, it's, the, it's the, the bar hanging game. You pay 10 bucks, you hang for two minutes, you get 100 bucks. Easiest money I think I'll ever make. And so I'm looking at that, I was like, I, I could totally do this. But we, we didn't have time, so we went home, and I went and I hung on my pull-up bar for two and a half minutes to test it. And I was like, kids, back in the van. And so we went back to Old Settlers. <laughs> We went back to Old Settlers with so much, con- I mean, I walked with this puffed up chest to this booth, and I got up, I was like, kids, we're going to feast like kings and queens tonight. I get up, and I hang on this bar. I didn't make a minute, because the bar spun. Yeah, I, I know, it's an injustice, right? Because like, here's the thing, I've, done, I've hung on bars before, I've used it in my training, but like, it's on ball, bearing, ball bearings, and it spun, totally different game. And so what began with this great confidence, I can do this, like the walk back to the van and the drive home was filled with such silence and shame, my kids cannot look at me the same. But I share that story just in case you thought I was really cool to humble myself. But, but to say that we are, we are so easily duped, so easily lied to in various settings. And just like Thyatira, we may be led astray by various narratives, stories that tell us what the good life is all about. Are we aware that there are Jezebels in our workplace, in our schools, at the gym, in our Netflix queue, in our, in our portfolios, in, in our podcasts, in our social media streams? Are we aware that we are led down a path to believe the good life is something contrary to what Jesus offers us? Perhaps the lies you're listening to are saying, do whatever it takes to increase profit margins. Or do whatever it takes to to make the grade. Do whatever it takes to get him or her to notice me. Do whatever it takes to maintain control in this part of my life or this relationship. Do whatever it takes to be comfortable or happy. Are we alert? Are we awake? Are we watchful? Are we attentive enough? Are we, to use a Bible word, are we sober-minded enough to be aware of the fact that we are constantly being told things that lead us down a path that is contrary to Jesus and his kingdom? One of my, my favorite books I've read recently in the last couple of years is a book called The Attentive Life by Lighton Ford. And Ford talks about the importance of attentiveness in the life of the believer. And he says this, ultimately, we become what we pay attention to. And the options available to us at any time are myriad. What we pay attention to doubles back and governs us. Hence, our attention is so deeply associated with either death or life. So much of the biblical narrative is the story of God working hard to get our attention. And I believe the best way to guard ourselves from these various lies that we tend to believe in is by paying attention to the one who is the truth. It's why we need the church. It's why we need the scriptures. It's why we need Jesus. The uncompromising church sees through the lies. But secondly, 
she also endures the costs. She endures the costs. And this is where I want to spend the lion's share of our time together. As I mentioned earlier, Thyatira is, is this very wealthy city in, in Asia Minor, and they're known for their very lucrative and influential trade guilds. And a trade guild was very much like a, like a labor union to some degree. A trade guild was basically a collection of, of merchants or craftsmen um, who basically, or various workers in various fields, who had this kind of collection, this network that provided and enforced quality control in their industry, provided financial resources, protected uh, employers from exploitation, and also served as a mediator in legal cases. And so if you wanted to be successful in business in Thyatira, you had to be a part of a trade guild. But again, because Thyatira was so deeply steeped in religious pagan practices, the trade guilds also had this kind of interwoven nature with these pagan practices. And so if you were a Christian in Thyatira and wanted to be successful in business, not only did you have to be a member of a trade guild, but you had to go along with all of the practices, expectations, and habits that went along with being a member of a trade guild, which meant engaging in various idolatrous practices, eating meat sacrificed to idols, engaging in some sexual religious practices. And so this is what, what it meant to, to do business in Thyatira. And so to self-select out of the trade guild, if you were a Christian, was both professional and financial suicide. It, it, like, you couldn't function. And so this is the pressure that these Christians in Thyatira are feeling. How do we follow Jesus, have allegiance to him above all else, and yet still try to provide for our family in a culture where, to be successful economically speaking, you've got to compromise on your convictions? And again, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to this church. Look with me at verse 20. Jesus says, But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This was the great pressure on Christians to be a part of a trade guild, to engage in these pagan practices. And you can imagine what that kind of pressure was like. And in many of you, you're feeling that. You know that pressure, pressure acutely today. And these are the pressures that we still face in our culture. We may look at Thyatira and say, like, this is such a different world. Like, we're not engaging in pagan worship. But we all know the pressures of what it means to be faithful to Jesus and yet compromise in order to be successful, to be light, to be productive in the places God has called us. And so the question I want us to consider, church, is we seek to be an uncompromising church that sees through the lies and endures the cost. We should ask ourselves this, what is Christ-like integrity worth to us? What is Christ-like integrity worth to us? Are we as a church, are we as a gathered and scattered people willing to endure the cost of following Jesus on Monday amidst the pressures and the challenges to compromise on our convictions? And here's the thing. I realize I'm speaking from a very privileged position because I don't know the pressures you all feel on Monday. Yes, I have my own temptations and own proclivities to compromise on Jesus, but I don't think it's anywhere close to what so many of you face. In fact, many of our students probably feel even more so. For you middle school and high school students, you know uniquely the pressures of following Jesus in a hostile culture. And so what is Christ-like integrity worth to us? And while the pressures come from all sides, I want to address just kind of the economic pressure specifically because that's kind of what's going on in Thyatira. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf in his book, Work in the Spirit, talks about this unique pressure that Christians have. 
He says this, a person certainly can hold to ethical norms, but often only so long as the dynamic of the economic system does not crush him. Faced with the choice between obedience to conscience and survival, he is likely to opt for survival. And some of you right now, like I, I, you're saying, like, I could have written that. You know this pressure very personally of what it means to follow Jesus and to avoid the compromise of giving in to what the culture says. So what do we do when the cultural and economic pressures force our hands, so to speak, to compromise with Jesus? What do you do when, when your boss asks you to craft a contract with intentionally ambiguous language that benefits the company at the expense of the client and the customer? What do you do if classmates of yours are planning to come together and cheat on an upcoming exam and they want your help? What do you do in that moment? When, when a neighbor or a coworker, or a friend or family member says something completely racist and bigoted, how do you respond in that moment? Are you willing to stand for truth or do you compromise in those pressure situations? I was talking with um, a member of our congregation recently who was telling me about how um, his boss regularly schedules meetings with, with um, him and other colleagues at a local establishment called Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks, if you're not familiar with it, Twin Peaks is, is a restaurant that basically just explicitly objectifies women and monetizes lust. So less than, more of the lesson, like, like don't go there, okay? Um, but basically, these meetings are held at this establishment. And, and because this member of our church wants to be faithful to Jesus and wants to have purity of heart and integrity, he doesn't go. And as a result, he misses out on a lot of conversation with his, with his boss. He misses out on building relational equity with him. He misses out on important conversations and connections with colleagues. That's part of what it means to be faithful to Jesus amidst these pressures in our pagan culture. In many ways, our devotion and allegiance to Jesus is tested the most in these moments of pressure. If you were with us a couple weeks ago at the Common Good Conference, you heard Brian Loritz talk about, he shared the story of, of a hotel owner who owns a large chain of hotels around the country, around the world, and who's a follower of Jesus himself. And he said that, that uh, recently they made the decision to stop offering pornography in all of their hotels around the world. And this decision resulted in them losing $10,000 from every hotel every month. That's a lot of, I'm not good at math, that's a lot of money. And, and, and the story was shared to say, like, this is what it means to endure the cost of doing business within God's design. Now, here's the question I want us to think about, like, why are we? Why do we find ourselves tempted to compromise on our convictions in our Monday life? I think one reason possibly why we find it so easy to compromise is because we, we struggle to see that the new life in Christ is a life to be lived for the good of others and not ourselves. A life that is lived for Jesus works, develops, creates, serves, and produces for the good of others and for the glory of God. Yes, for some sense of personal compensation, but primarily for contribution for the good of all. That's the reordering of those who see their work through the lens of Jesus' kingdom. And in fact, we have to step out of Revelation, but we see an example of this transformed life in a member of the city of Thyatira by the name of Lydia. If you remember when we were in the book of Acts, Acts 16, we're introduced to this woman named Lydia. She's this well-to-do businesswoman. She owns this kind of textile company that's centered around catering to the, the financial and social elite. 
So she, like first century Louis Vuitton, like that's what she's producing essentially. And Lydia is referred to in, in Acts 16, we see that she comes to faith in Christ. And what we notice is that Lydia doesn't quit her job to become a missionary. She continues to serve Jesus and the church by remaining in her vocation and in her sphere of influence because she knows that she has an opportunity to transform the culture right where she is. She embraces this, faithfully pre- this faithful presence and a fruitful productivity in all that she does. But unfortunately, Thyatira didn't have enough Lydia's. Thyatira needed more Lydia's. Kansas City needs more Lydia's. People transformed by the gospel of Jesus that sees everything that we do for the good of others, for the glory of God, not for our own personal gain. Our city and our world need an uncompromising church that endures the costs and sees through the lies. But lastly, as we continue on in the letter, more than that, what the world needs is an uncompromising church that holds fast to Jesus. The uncompromising church holds fast to Jesus. And and here's the reality. All of us, all of us are holding fast to something or someone. The question is, is it strong enough to hold us throughout all of life's challenges and pains and difficulties and heartaches? You see, there's there's some strong and frightening language in this letter that Jesus pens to Thyatira. In this letter, we see him calling out this message of judgment. And and it's a message that we should be alert to and pay attention to as a church. Jesus is quite clear. Judgment will come to those who do not hold fast to him. In verse 23, Jesus says this, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's, That's terrifying to hear. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, these phrases in that, in that word of judgment, these exact phrases, search the mind and give according to your works, is pulled directly from Jeremiah 17. Jesus knew what he was doing when he penned these words. In Jeremiah 17, we see God rebuking Israel for their idolatry that was rooted and driven by economic motives. Israel had become so infatuated with greed and possession and wealth that they were compromising on their allegiance to Yahweh, and they were looking just like all the other competing pagan peoples around them. And and God calls them out and judges them because of their compromise against him. They strayed from God, gaining wealth and possession through greed and unethical practices. Israel compromised on their allegiance to God, and that's what brought about judgment. In the same way, Thyatira is warned here. Do not go the way of Israel at that time. He warns them, if you compromise with me, you will get nothing. But, but hear me, church, this, this is where you really got to pay attention. This is not a message of condemnation to those who make mistakes. Jesus is speaking a word of judgment to those who would say, I can worship Jesus on Sunday and completely ignore him in how I spend the rest of my time in my Monday life. That's what Jesus is speaking to. It's not about people who make mistakes. Jesus is not confronting and condemning people who are imperfect, but rather he is calling out people who basically say, I want the kingdom without the king. I want Jesus, but but only so far as I have the right to edit out the parts of him that don't jive with my lifestyle. That's who Jesus is speaking to. It is a message to those who have compromised with Jesus. But the good news 
is that those who refuse to compromise, those who hold fast to Jesus, hear these beautiful words of promise in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some refer to, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. That's, that's the good news of this terrifying letter. That those who compromise on Jesus will get nothing, but those who have pledged their allegiance to him amidst a hostile culture and community, those are the ones that receive the blessing of saying, you will not receive any burden from me, for I've come to remove your burdens. Jesus does not bring judgment and lay burdens on those who have surrendered their lives to him, who have pledged their allegiance to him. There are no burdens to be placed on those who give and live their lives for Jesus. The only burden that they receive is the light and easy yoke that Jesus invites them into. When he says, I lay on you no other burden, I believe Jesus is remembering his great invitation in Matthew 11. The reason why he lays no other burden upon those who are committed to Jesus is because of what he says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? Jesus is not the paranoid, cynical parent who looks at us and says, when you leave the house, you better obey, you better do as I, as I say, you better not disrespect me or else. That's not the posture and tone of Jesus as he's speaking to the church at Thyatira. Instead, Jesus is the heartbroken parent who sees his wayward children drifting away, and he says, I see your hearts. I see that they're drifting away. I see that they have been bought, they've bought into a lie, and I want you to come back to me. Be rooted and established in me and my truth so that I may lay no other burdens upon you. For those who have come to discern the lies, and for those who have come to endure the cost, and those who hold fast to Jesus, they receive the sweet promise that Christ declares, I have come to lay no other burden upon you. That is why we as a church must be uncompromising in our commitment to, our devotion to, our allegiance to, our faithfulness to Jesus. This is the good news of this terrifying letter, that while compromising with Jesus gets us nothing, those who give their lives to him and seek first his kingdom receive the blessing of their burdens removed, of their sins forgiven, of their victories won, and their place with Jesus, our king, forever. And so friends, hear me, there are many things in life to compromise on, but do not let Jesus be one of them, amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. May you be holy as you are, Lord, to us. May we see you for who you are in your glory and your might and your majesty. Lord Jesus, may you be the king that Revelation describes you as in our lives. Lord, would your spirit bring about a sense of conviction, open our eyes to see the lies that we have bought into, Lord, give us the strength and the ability, the wisdom, the discernment, and the courage to endure the costs to follow you. Lord, may you grant us wisdom in our places of work, in our schools, in our communities. May we be attentive, may we be alert and watchful to the ways in which we are led astray to believe something that is not aligned with your will.
And Lord, may we be a people who hold fast to Jesus, the one who has come to not add to our burdens, but to remove our burdens by becoming our burdens. Lord Jesus, may you be king of this church. May you be the king of your church so that we might be a people sent out in all the places you have called us as you establish the work of our hands to do the work you have called us to in renewing all things for the good of all people and the glory of Christ Jesus. Would you show yourself to be king to us all? We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.